The cold of the mountain bites with icicle teeth. Sharp and bitter, it cuts like dagger in sheath. Ben Luna folk know to stay home by the hearth, swapping stories and songs until the season is past. Some legends are false, but others might be true. What you believe, of course, is up to you. But when the sun is gone and taken the warmth with her, it's hard to tell truth from lies in the darkness of winter. The snow was well into its third day of falling. The first night had been a delight, the second a sight, but the third was a nuisance. The residents of Benluna were at this moment trudging through the knee-high drift on their way to the town square, getting soaked socks and shivery fingers. The sun was once again setting into the valley behind a thick layer of grey cloud, like a gold coin disappearing into the Starver Church's money box. Chloe and George Bergren stamped their feet at the church entrance, hoping to dislodge the worst of the snow and suffer less wetness during the upcoming service. They were nervous. This was their tenth winter in Benluna, but the first where they were expected to perform in the Lung Nut Show. They had been practising for weeks, and now the whole town was finding their seats in the cavernous circular hall. Thankfully, the church hall was heated by four large fireplaces around the edges, behind the banks of seats. Chloe admired the beautiful candle arrangements in the suspended chandeliers, and George reached out to see if her sprig of holly was still sharp. It was, and he pulled his finger back quickly, putting it into his mouth and tasting a drop of blood. Ninny, his sister whispered. George glared at her, pulled his other hand back and went to hit her arm, but his strike was swiftly caught by his mother. Enough, she spoke sharply, cutting the fight short. Now was not the time for nonsense. Now was the time for focus and best behaviour. Brother Thomas was there, greeting everyone in his traditional robes of white and green. Some of the other children involved in the show were sitting to one side, and, upon seeing them come in, Brother Thomas signalled for Chloe and George to join them. Chloe didn't like sitting on the floor. The stone was cold, and her knees always ached from sitting cross-legged. George didn't seem to mind. He plonked his bottom next to Anna Grevling and began to trace the words and patterns on the stones with his finger. Once everybody had set their gloves and hats to dry by the various fires, they found their seats. The hubbub of the crowd settled down and Brother Thomas addressed the town. Friends, families, neighbours, welcome. The last of the visitors are gone the leaves have all fallen and winter is once again with us. I'd ask you if it was still snowing out there, but I think half of it might have just been brought into the hall. There was a ripple of polite laughter. But though the mountain may be cold, my heart is made warm by the sea of familiar faces before me. I'm not going to lie to you. 
it has not been an easy year. George and Chloe looked up to the crowd and saw several solemn faces and nodding heads. Brother Thomas elaborated. Our community has suffered tragedy. Chloe saw Brother Thomas glance briefly at a middle-aged woman. And we've had loved ones move away, he continued, smiling at the man and woman next to her. Chloe looked to her classmates and was reminded that they were missing two people, Kilda Vickers and Lillian Lausanne. No wonder the show felt so empty this year. George was secretly happy that Lillian had moved away. She would only have ruined the show. Brother Thomas shifted the mood. But we have also had boons. Eva and Alex have recently welcomed a new little one into our community. There was a small round of applause and murmurs of congratulations. And who could forget the generosity of our visitors this summer? The applause grew louder and even Chloe and George smiled at the shared good fortune. When the various in-jokes and pats on the backs ceased, Brother Thomas continued. But tonight is not about the past. It is about our current predicament. He said this with a wide smile on his face and the townsfolk all giggled and shot knowing looks at the younger members of the congregation. Yes, friends, we seem to be experiencing a spot of bother. Our good friend the sun has disappeared. Some of the crowd gasped in mock horror. Indeed, a real tragedy. However, all hope is not lost. Tonight marks one week until Langnut, which means there is still time to convince the sun to come back to us. We do this, of course, by singing, dancing, telling stories and showing her that Ben Luna is a place of love and warmth, filled with fun, friends and family. And if we do well, which I have every confidence that we will, then the sun will be back to brighten our days in the spring. So, friends, I have this favour to ask of you. Will you help me to show the sun what she is missing? There was a loud cheer from the town. Then I hereby declare the week of Lung Nut started. An even louder cheer resounded around the hall and the small orchestra seated near the children began to play. This was Chloe and George's cue to stand up and begin the show. Their song and story went off without too many hitches. A few fluffed lines and a couple of wardrobe issues were the only real errors. This year, the children were telling the tale of when Karodit, the heroine, outsmarted Enoch, god of chaos. Enoch had appeared to her in the form of a black heron and promised to end the plague in Karodit's village. Enoch, of course, was only pretending to be nice to distract everyone from his trickery. Karodit agreed to his terms, but only if she could watch him work his magic. With Karodit following him closely at all times, he was unable to slip away, and so the village was saved thanks to her patience and persistence. Chloe looked on with envious eyes at the girl who played Karodit. She was two years older and had memorised all her lines in just three days. 
George was distracted by a tear in his costume, which threatened to undermine his role as villager number three. Alas, Karodit, my three children are too sick to enjoy the langnut bread you have so graciously given, he said confidently when his time came to repeat the line. Chloe had no lines, but she had the very important job of holding Enoch's wings for whenever he appeared. She enjoyed the boos and jeers the puppet received every time it reared its ugly head. The piece ended with another song, the chorus of which was sung by everyone in the church. When it was finished, the room clapped and cheered and celebrated the young storytellers and the triumph of cleverness over chaos. Brother Thomas stepped forward once more and applauded his appreciation along with the rest of the crowd. Once the children of Ben Luna had taken their seats on the stone floor again, he turned back to the audience, took a deep breath and looked as though he was about to say something. He was distracted, however, by movement and a small shuffling sound. The crowd followed his gaze to one of the entrances to the circle, where a woman was walking into the empty space. Everyone in the town recognised her as Mrs. Torreson. She was the old lady who lived in the big house near the mountain path. A smattering of whispers and shrugs spread through the audience as she made her way slowly towards the centre of the hall. She was wearing a traditional Benluna dress, beautifully crafted in dark blue and red colours, with white flowers stitched along the hems and sleeves. She approached Brother Thomas with a kind smile on her face, took his hand in hers and patted it gently, signifying her thanks and respect. Brother Thomas gave her a small bow in return, and she gestured for him to take his seat, which he graciously did. Mrs. Torreson then turned to bow to the children by way of thanks. Chloe and George flushed with embarrassment. They turned to each other, wide-eyed and smiling. This acknowledgement from an elder was a great honour, and its importance was not lost on any of the young performers. She then turned back to the crowd. Everyone was waiting with bated breath to hear what she had to say but they would have to wait just a while longer as Mrs. Torreson raised her arms up to the sky. Her fingers spread wide and closed her eyes. She remained motionless for a second in silent meditation. Some people joined her in closing their eyes, breathing deeply and remaining still, as was the way of the nocta. George did not close his eyes so he was amazed to witness the candles begin to dim and the hall darken as Mrs. Thorison slowly brought her hands down with a long exhalation of her breath. When the lights were low and the people were ready, she began her story. Where do shadows go when it is dark? During these long winter nights, we might ask ourselves such questions. Each year, we tell the tale of the sleeping sun, 
how she must be roused from slumber and return to bring us brightness. But we have forgotten the whole story. There is another player in this pageant. We spoke of him when I was little, but with every winter since, his name was mentioned less and less. I can see on some of your faces that you know of whom I speak, although you may not remember his name, for you were barely babes when it was spoken last. The Dark Emissary of the Sun, the Shadow Man, Narvengast. A chill wind whistled around the hall. Chloe pulled her costume tightly around her shoulders. She didn't like scary stories, and this was starting to feel like a scary story. Mrs. Torrison continued. Yes, I see that you remember now. You know that to ask that the sun return to us is selfish, really. Why should she shine on us when we behave so irresponsibly in her light and heat? That is why, when she disappears, she sends Narvengast. He goes door to door under cover of darkness, of which he himself is made, taking names and passing judgment on those who have been bad. If you earn the light of the sun by being kind and showing virtue, then he will pass by your door. You may even receive a little gift the morning after Lungnut, if you are very lucky. She winked at a little girl sitting in the audience who was gripping her mother's skirt in fright. But, she returned quickly back to the crowd, her eyes narrowed in suspicion. If you are judged and found unworthy of the sun's light, then Narvengast will put your name on his scroll. He will enter your home, he will find you sleeping, and... The audience collectively leaned forward so as to catch every word. He will place something under your bed, and there it will sit for five long days, lest you upset him further, and he takes you away. What is it, you ask? What will I dread to find beneath my bed? You can fight, and you can wish, but you cannot avoid the terrible, stinking fish. At that moment, Mrs. Torrison reached into her sleeve and pulled out a real fish. The crowd gasped and laughed in shock. The front row reeled back in mock terror as she brandished it at them and wriggled it in their faces. She laughed at their fear and the tension disappeared from the hall. Even the candles seemed to glow brighter. The Benluna townsfolk clapped and cheered at the story, so expertly told. Many figured that Brother Thomas had been in on the joke the whole time, and they swapped reactions and mock warnings with each other as they slowly left the church and headed home. Chloe and George teased each other mercilessly, 
each claiming that the other had been more scared of the story and its shadowy protagonist. Friends and neighbours waved goodbye as they carved paths to their front doors through the ever-deepening snow. That night, Ben Luna slept peacefully. Chloe and George wrapped themselves in wool blankets and drifted into dreamful slumber. Everyone in the town was blissfully ignorant of any strangeness happening in the night. And so, it wasn't until the next morning that every house in Ben Luna discovered the fishes that had been nailed to their front doors. In George and Chloe's household, it was their mother who found their fish first. It was a rather large, pink-bellied salmon, kept fresh by the cold. It took her several tries to pull the nail out, but eventually it came loose. She brought the fish in and plonked it onto the kitchen table with a wet slap. Like many other residents, she simply assumed that some silly kids had played a trick on them. She even briefly considered that it might be her own twins that were responsible. But their expressions of genuine surprise at the sight of it told her that that couldn't be true. Was it Narvengast? asked George, prodding the fish's eye with his finger. Of course not, said his mother, slapping his hand away. It will be the Borville boys playing pranks. George was not convinced. Chloe, the more curious of the two, opened the front door and looked down their street. They lived in the eastern part of Benluna, where the houses were squat and tightly packed together. They're on all the doors, Mama, she squealed in delight. Their mother had been so distracted by their own fish that she had failed to notice the others. George ran to look, gulped and whispered to himself, Narvengast! A town meeting was called that afternoon. Some people actually brought their fish to the Starver Church. Someone was sent to find Mrs. Thorison, but she was not in her house. A group was put together to find her, but after scouring the entire town, she was nowhere to be found. Some people were angry, as if this was some joke in poor taste meant to scare their children. Others thought it was funny, even if just for the impressiveness of the feat. Some took it very seriously indeed and vowed to keep their fish under their beds for the next five nights for fear of further retribution from some fabled bogeyman. Brother Thomas was expected to provide people with answers, but even the Starver Church had had a minnow pinned to its door and he was just as confused as everyone else. One thing was agreed upon by all. The telling of the Narvengast story and the appearance of the fish was not a coincidence. The children of Ben Luna held their own meeting at the same time, although theirs had a very different atmosphere to it. Packed in like sardines, if you'll excuse the phrase, into Ede Wacker's treehouse, a group of seven young friends heatedly discussed their theories. I think it was Mrs. Torrison, said Ben. Don't be silly, rebuked his younger sister, Kara. She's too old. She would have frozen to death after the first ten fishes. I think it was my dad. He goes fishing all the time, said little Tim as he chewed on a licorice root. 
Yes, but he doesn't have anywhere to store a hundred fish, does he? Asked George. No, we have an attic. It's dark up there. What if, interrupted Chloe, it was Mrs Torrison, but she didn't do it herself. This suggestion gave the group pause. What do you mean? Asked Sarah Smallcop, the eldest of the group and the heroine in last night's show. Well, we all know that Mrs Torrison is magic. The group nodded. This was common knowledge in the Benluna playground. She's a witch, Tim squealed in delight. But a good one, said Ben to more nods and affirmative mumbles. Chloe continued with her theory. So, what if she worked with someone or something to make sure Bin Luna got taught a lesson? The group did not want to speak the name that was on the tip of their tongues. It was George who braved the words first. Do you mean Narvengast? Maybe, said Chloe. Or some other spirits, or even demons. The licorice stick fell out of Tim's mouth. It doesn't make sense, said Eddie petulantly. Mrs Torrison said that Narvengast gives people fish if they've been bad, but every house in Ben Luna got one. They can't all be bad, can they? The children thought a while. Chloe and George swapped concerned looks. Sarah Smallcop pulled her periwinkle blue shawl over her blonde hair and spoke resolutely. If we're going to know who's responsible, then that's what we have to find out. What has Ben Luna done to have received this judgment? The group split into teams. Ben and Kara were tasked with finding Mrs Torrison and asking her about Narvengast. Tim and Eddie were to speak to Tim's father and find out where all the fish could have come from. Chloe, George and Sarah were to interview the residents of Benluna and come up with reasons why the town had been judged by Narvengast. They all agreed to meet back at the treehouse just before sundown to discuss their findings. Who do you think we should ask first? inquired George as he and the two girls trudged through the snow to the centre of town. The sky was still cloudy but thankfully it had stopped snowing. Even so, the three of them pulled their thick coats tight to stave off the cold. The sleepy sun was low in the sky, a bright white circle in the clouds, barely illuminating the path ahead. I'm not sure, admitted Sarah, who was confidently carving a path for the smaller siblings. Chloe was about to suggest a few names when she saw someone up ahead. It was a young woman who she did not recognise. She was walking very slowly through the snow, carrying something round and pink. Occasionally, she would slip and scream and throw her free arm up in the air to redress her balance. Who is that? whispered Chloe. Her brother and Sarah shrugged. As they drew closer, George squinted and stared at the struggling lady. Is she carrying a pig? Chloe looked back at her and saw that the pink thing under her arm was indeed a little pig. It was wearing a comical little red coat and its nose had a small icicle hanging off the end of it. It was obvious to the kids why the lady was carrying it. If it was allowed to walk on the ground, it would have been swallowed by the snow. Are you all right, miss? asked Sarah as they approached. Oh, hello. Um... Yes, I think so. This path is quite slippery, isn't it? 
She took a few shaky steps towards them and checked her pig to see if it was still safe. You need some hobnails, said George. Some what? George and Chloe lifted their feet to show the woman the soles of their boots. They were studded with little spikes that made navigating the snow much easier. Well, look at that, said the woman. Her cheeks were flushed red from the effort of walking. What are you three doing out in the snow? You'll catch a chill if you're not careful. We're asking people about the fish on their doors, said Chloe. We're trying to find out why Ben Luna has been bad, George added bluntly. But we're not sure where to start, admitted Sarah. The woman considered their reason. Yes, it is strange, isn't it? I'm afraid I don't know. I'm still quite new to Ben Luna, you see. The children weren't going to say anything, but that much had been obvious from her lack of skill in navigating the snow. But I suppose if I was you, she continued, I would start at the heart of the town. George screwed up his face in thought. Oh! Chloe gasped in sudden realisation. The fox and octopus! Yes, agreed Sarah. They looked back at the woman and her little pig to see her smiling. That was my thinking, she said. The children thanked her for the inspiration and walked past her, each scratching her pig's chin or patting his head as they passed by. By the way, she called out to them as they walked away, where can I get some of those boots? The Fox and Octopus was Ben Luna's primary drinking establishment. Rain or shine, snow or no, its doors were open to weary travellers and locals alike. It was still morning, so the main room was empty. The inn's owners, Zander and Lini, were busy installing a large barrel behind the bar. The empty one lay to one side, ready to go back down into the cellar for the winter. The three children stomped the snow off their boots as they crossed the threshold. The sound distracted Zander momentarily, and the barrel nearly slipped from his grasp. Watch out, shouted Lini. Sorry, sorry. Be right with you, kids. The young ones happily installed themselves next to the burning fire, taking off their boots and warming their socks on the crackling heat. A large moose's head, mounted on the wall, stared down at them from above the hearth. George admired its antlers. Each one was bigger than his leg. How can we help? asked Xander, smiling politely at the three friends. Can I get you a drink? Some blackberry fire, perhaps? George smiled and was about to agree to the recommendation, but Sarah cut him off. I'm afraid we're here on important business, Mr Xander. Oh, I see. Well, how can I help then? Lini came over, intrigued by the young girl's official-sounding tone. You have many patrons in this establishment every night, do you not? We close early on Mondays, confirmed Lini, but yes, I suppose we do. We were wondering, said Chloe, her feet dangling off the edge of the soft armchair, if you've heard or seen anything that might explain why everyone received a fish this morning. The couple looked at each other, earnest and confused expressions on their faces. Xander turned back to the little girl. What do you mean, exactly? It was George who replied. Why would a spirit think Ben Luna has been bad? This seemed to make more sense to Xander, who leaned back with his hands on his hips and considered the question. 
I suppose, he said, looking at his wife for affirmation, that it would all depend on whose perspective you were looking at. The children swapped excited looks. Perspective? Sarah parroted. Oh, yes, said Leany. You see, what might be good for one is not necessarily good for another. The wolves are happy to find a lonely deer in the woods, but is the deer happy to be found by the wolves? The flames were reflecting in her eyes, giving them a strangely menacing glow. George felt a shiver run down his spine, despite the heat of the fire. He glanced up to the moose, wondering if it had been happy to spy the hunter. So, you're saying that someone, or something, might be upset by something good that Ben Luna has done? asked Sarah. It's possible. Xander crossed his arms in thought. I certainly can't think of anything evil that the town has done on purpose. Can I just ask? Lini spoke up, and the children turned to look at her. Who do you think was responsible for the fish? George, Chloe and Sarah all looked at each other. They were nervous to give their theory for fear of sounding silly. It was Chloe who put it best. We were remembering Mrs. Torreson's story about the demon who put fish under the beds of bad people. She trailed off, leaving the inn's owners to fill in the rest. They both nodded in understanding. Well, said Leany, clapping her hands together, if that story has brought you here, then I'm afraid you're in the wrong place. Why? asked George. Because we don't deal in those kinds of spirits. The door of the Starver Church loomed tall and dark. Sarah knocked on it hard with the base of her fist. The old wood shook on its hinges, sending a booming echo into the depths of the building. George picked his nose while they waited for a response. Chloe studied the intricate carvings of frogs that adorned the doors. Her favourite was a rather fat-looking one with funny eyes on the bottom left. Maybe they're out she suggested, but as soon as she stopped speaking, the latch on the other side sounded and the doors opened, revealing Brother Ulmar. At first, he looked right above their heads in confusion, not seeing the three of them standing beneath him. But then he noticed them. Oh, he exclaimed. Good morning, young ones. Hello, brother, said Sarah. May we come in? We have some questions for you and your brother. Brother Ulmar stepped to one side and shut the door behind them. He led them down the entrance and into the main hall, muttering to himself as he went. Questions for the brothers. Well, the brothers have questions. The books have the answers to most questions. But what if we question the books? Therein lies the path of the brothers, hmm? Chloe didn't realise that he was directing the question at her. Oh, uh, yes she said, unsure of how else to respond. Brother Ulnar brought the three of them to the church library, the door to which was at the back of the hall, near the entrance to the brothers' communal space. The door to the library was painted red and was slightly ajar. Sarah had been in here before, but it was George and Chloe's first time inside. Chloe's eyes widened to the size of dinner plates as Brother Ulnar pushed the door open to reveal a room nearly as tall as the central hall. Every wall was lined with shelves, and on these shelves were hundreds and hundreds of books. 
Some of the shelves had broken under the weight of them. The colourful covers made the room look like it was mosaiced in bright bricks. It was warm in here, with a small fire burning brightly at the far end. A large armchair sat facing the flames. It was positioned on a well-cleaned stone floor, quite a distance from the fireplace. The fire itself was behind two layers of protective metal screens. Extra precautions were necessary here, considering the precious contents of the room. Nestled inside the armchair, covered in a patchwork blanket, reading a rather large book, was Brother Thomas. "'Some young ones with questions, brother,' said Brother Ulnar by way of introduction. "'Ah, hello. Thank you, brother. I'll be happy to answer their questions.' He stood up and bade the children to fetch chairs and stools so that they could all sit together. Once they were all comfortable, Brother Ulnar shuffled off and the children explained their mission to Brother Thomas, who smiled in understanding. "'I've been wondering exactly the same thing. I came in here to see if I could find any stories about this Narvengast character.' He gestured to a small pile of books lying on a table nearby. I found some mentions of the name, but this is the oldest book I've found so far with the whole story. The children looked at each other excitedly. George secretly hoped that they wouldn't have to hear the story again. Once had been enough. Can I see it? asked Chloe. Yes, of course, but please be careful. The parchment is extremely old. Chloe took the book from him, and Sarah and George moved their chairs closer to hers. It had a black cover, tarnished by mould and damp, and its corners were worn away. The pages within were in decent condition, but they were yellow and brittle. Chloe could feel how fragile they were as she brushed her fingers over them. She read the title out loud. Northern Stories a transcription of oral traditions from the mountains and valleys? It doesn't say who did the actual transcribing, said Brother Thomas, but Narvengast appears here. He carefully turned the pages, revealing beautiful maps, illustrations of animals, starry skies and margins filled with little tadpoles. The curly cursive text filled the pages, but Chloe could only read the occasional word. When Brother Thomas finally found the chapter he was looking for, the pages were suspiciously void of pictures. The story started just like the others, but it took several turns of the page to reveal the first and only illustration. Chloe nearly gasped at the sight of it. Staring back at her from the page was a dark and terrible figure. It had sad, yellow eyes that stared painfully out of mottled skin. It was ancient, and it looked tired of being alive. On its back, it carried a large, hessian sack, which it gripped between twiggy fingers. Its large, dirty robe covered a pot belly, and spindly legs stuck out from the bottom. Is that... George couldn't finish the question. It is confirmed Brother Thomas. See, his name is here and here. The language is old, but I have some experience reading it. The group stared at the picture for some time. What is that beside his feet? Sarah pointed to a collection of brown and black boxes at the bottom of the page. 
I believe they are the houses he visits in the story. Houses? shouted Chloe. But they're tiny. The comment hung in the air while the children came to terms with what it meant. Brother Thomas, Sarah spoke with a tremble in her voice. Does the story say anything about why he gives people fish? Brother Thomas took the book back and turned the pages, trying to find a particular passage. This story is similar to the one told last night. It says it somewhere. He ran his finger down a page until a word caught his eye. Ah, here we are. And Narvengas gave them pesk, that's an old word for fish, and told them to cape for five moons, for they had done dark deeds and were thusly horned. I'm afraid that's all it says. George sighed. Dark deeds could mean anything. Brother Thomas shut the book slowly, making sure that none of the pages were caught in the folding. I always thought that the fish was a symbol, a representation of punishment or penance. It says that the people who get a fish must keep it for five days to atone for these dark deeds, whatever they may be. Now, fish notoriously goes off quite quickly, and to keep it under your bed for even one day would be tough enough, don't you think? The young ones smiled at the thought. The story is mainly about how he was born, Brother Thomas continued, about how he was a greedy prince who gathered riches from his people and pretended to give them to the sun so that it would continue to shine, but, in truth, he kept the gold for himself. The sun punishes the people for believing the prince by disappearing for five days, and she takes the prince with her and traps him in servitude. He is forced to judge the people every winter to see if they are worthy of the sun's return. The bit about the fish is quite near the end, and is generally considered, among the church, to be a symbol for time running out. It certainly was never thought to be a literal fish. The children considered this. So, if you don't fix the problem after five days, asked Chloe, what happens? Brother Thomas's expression grew serious. I believe that is what the sack is for. The church doors shut behind them, and Sarah and the twins were once again out in the cold, fresh air. The sun was gone, but the sky still kept a little light. The night would be upon them soon, and with it a deadly cold. So if we don't find out what's going on and fix it within five days, said George, we're all going to end up in a sack. Chloe would normally have laughed at her brother's exaggeration, but the situation was just too serious. Let's get back to the treehouse, said Sarah. Maybe the others have found something. Tim, Eddie, Kara and Ben were already back at the treehouse, excitedly discussing their findings. George was last to poke his head up through the floor. He grabbed one of the blankets that Kara had brought with her and huddled around the three candles. They knew they could not stay out for long, but plans were plans and their findings begged to be shared. Ben and Kara unfortunately had no luck in finding Mrs. Torreson, but they did manage to speak to her butler, Mr. Stepson. Apparently, he said that Mrs. Torreson often went missing 
and that she would be back in a few nights. Where did she go? asked Chloe. He wasn't sure, said Kara. Sometimes she stays with friends, sometimes she just disappears. Once he said that he found her by the Paddestone in the middle of the night, said Ben. She's a witch, George exclaimed, and all nodded in agreement. Tim and Eddie had had more luck in their quest. Apparently, Tim's father said that there was only one place near Ben Luna that so much fresh fish could be caught at once. He calls it Lake Citron, and he says it's filled with fish of all kinds, Tim explained, his nose red and running. But he says it's an hour away from town. And, added Eddie, he also said that it freezes over in the winter, so fishing is really hard. The group thought on this information for a second. I still think it would be worth going to see it, said Sarah. We might find something useful, a clue or something. The rest of the group agreed and Sarah went on to explain what they had found at the Starva Church Library. She described the story and the picture of Narvengast in great detail, not forgetting to mention that their mission now had a time limit of five, no, four days. The group then swapped theories and ideas as to what the dark deeds might be. They had some good ideas, but nothing seemed quite right. Ben Luna was quite a small town, so anything that the community did all together would be common knowledge, and the children couldn't think of anything that might be considered dark or evil in any way. They resolved to meet in the morning, at first light, on the edge of town with enough food packed for the day so that they could go and explore the lake. Right, we should probably go home. Mum will be wondering... Oh dear. Chloe was in the middle of warning the others about the late hour when she glanced outside. The group had been so caught up in the adventure they had failed to see the night creep into the sky and fall silently over the mountain. Chloe let out a long breath, a cloud of vapour escaped from her mouth and it glowed orange from the candlelight, making her look like a very worried dragon. Crumbs! shouted Kara. I need to be home. Mum doesn't like it when I'm out after dark. The group scrambled to get up and leave the confines of the suspended wooden hut. Sarah blew out the candles, only to light them again, as the cloud-covered sky had plunged Ben Luna into a thick, inky darkness. They divided the candles between them and held them aloft like torches to guide them through the snow. And so they picked their way through the frozen streets. The candles were small and their golden glow barely went ten feet before being overwhelmed by the oppressive blackness. Tim's house was found first, then Kara and Ben's place was only round the corner. Sara and Eddie found their homes soon after, which meant that Chloe and George had to take the main road, two left turns and then only 20 feet until they were back home. The first leg was fine, the roads were quiet and their candle still had plenty of wax to last them the journey. My fingers are going numb, said George. Not much further, his sister reassured him, even though she knew exactly how he was feeling. They were both wearing sheepskin mittens, but the cold did not care. A few flecks of snow started to fall about them. After the first left turn, and with the warm hearth of home not far ahead, Chloe stopped her brother. What is it? he asked. I thought I saw something. 
We can check in the morning, Chloe. Come on, I'm hungry and freeze... Wait! She stepped back a few feet, holding her candle low to the floor to illuminate the settled snow. George's stomach urged him to hurry her. It's nothing. Now come on, it's creepy out here. There. George, his curiosity getting the better of him, retraced his steps and stared at the spot where his sister was pointing. What? What is it? Can't you see? His sister traced the shape stamped in the snow in the air with her finger. It's a footprint. But, George's voice shook with cold and fear, it's so big. The next morning, the seven friends met near the river path. Each one carried a small pack filled with sandwiches, dried meat or cheese. The snow had frozen and hardened overnight, making the pathways a little more treacherous than normal, but nothing a good hobnailed boot couldn't handle. Chloe described the footprint they'd found the night before. It looked like a foot, a barefoot, only it was big. About your height, Kara. Kara looked down at her body, her face the picture of shock. The group considered going to see the footprint and maybe even seeing where it led, but more snow had fallen during the night and any trace would have been long gone. Not wishing to lose any more time, they set off on their journey to find Lake Citron. Following the river was not too difficult. Tim's father had advised they stick close to it if they wished to find the lake. They sang songs and told jokes as they picked their way through the winter wood. It was like walking through a painting. Sunlight streaked in golden lines through the snow-capped canopy. The river babbled pleasantly by their side as if eagerly joining in their conversations. Tiny icicles clung to banks and branches. Every now and then one of them would slip and the rest would laugh and go to help wiping wet leaves from soggy bottoms. It was a journey whose beauty could only be truly appreciated through the eyes of an older self many years after the fact. They made good time. After an hour or so, the river began to widen and they had trouble keeping up with the sticks they threw into it. The happy babble quickly grew to a raucous roaring and after cresting a small hill up ahead, Sarah turned around to shout something back to her friends. There it is! We found the lake! The rest of them ran to catch up with her. The trees thinned and the view opened onto a large empty space surrounded by steep, rocky mountain sides. At first it looked as though there was just a field covered in snow, but it was too flat and too perfectly settled to be anything other than a frozen lake. The troop made their way slowly down the hill, the river they had been following had turned sharply left some way back and they could see where it fed into the lake further down the shore. The water moved too much to freeze at the mouth, making it look like it was disappearing underground beneath the frozen floor. George paused his descent to look further down the coast. He spotted other rivers feeding the lake as well, two, three and even a fourth quite some distance away. It's very pretty 
said Ben as they approached the stony shoreline. The rest of them nodded in silent agreement. Nothing stood immediately out to them as strange or out of place, so they resolved to eat their packed lunches and discuss the various findings. The sounds of water and chewing, as well as the occasional bird, filled the silences. If the footprint was made yesterday, Eddie wondered aloud, then does that mean Narvengast came back? What do you mean? asked Chloe. Well, if he gave everyone a fish the night before, then his prints would have been covered by the snow. So since you found a footprint last night, that means he must have come back, no? The group chewed over the notion. It seemed to make sense. I suppose so, said Ben. Strange to think that he was in town while we were in the treehouse, said Tim in a low and shy voice. The others didn't want to think too much about that. Hang on, Chloe realised something. If he came back to Ben Luna last night, does that mean he's going to come back tonight as well? Everyone let out a small sound, somewhere between fear and excitement. We can set up a watch, suggested Kara. We'll get torches instead of candles, added Ben. No, 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 we shouldn't have any light. He might see it and run away, suggested George. How are we going to see him if it's dark, chided his sister. Oh, yeah. Listen, Sarah, always the voice of reason for the group, interjected. Let's take it one investigation at a time. We came all the way here. We should at least look for evidence of a boat or something. They packed away their lunches. Ben was still eating, so he hurriedly tried to finish so that he could join the hunt. His mother had packed him a small slice of cake, and it was just too delicious to rush. Eddie was the first to suggest stepping out onto the ice. Absolutely not, said Sarah. If you fall through, you'll catch a chill, and I'm not carrying you all the way back home on my back. Sarah was adamant, but Eddie was persuasive. Don't fret, Sarah. Look, I can see the stones under the ice here. Even if it did break, I'd only get a wet foot. Sarah went to stop him, but he was already taking the first tentative step. See? He turned back to show his progress off to the others. It's fine. He was quickly joined by the boys, Ben and Tim. Then, after seeing that it appeared to be safe, the girls hopped onto the frozen surface. They all leaned on each other for safety, slipping and giggling as they went. Sarah made sure that no one went out too far. The last thing I want is to turn around and see you fall in, OK? I'm the oldest, so you have to listen to me. They grumbled their consent and went back to exploring the icy surface. It was fun to scrape away at the thin layer of snow and peek into the hidden water world below. Occasionally, someone would spy a fish and all would rush over to look. It was while they were admiring a particularly large swimmer that Sarah heard George cry out. Oh! she heard, and she whipped around, worried. George was fine, but he lifted his right boot up to show the rest of the group. Water dripped off the end of it. There's a hole here, he exclaimed in curious delight. Careful, George, said Chloe. I'm fine. Come and see, though. He gestured to where his foot had fallen through the ice. The others tiptoed and slid over to join him. It might be a crack, so be ready to run, warned Sarah, ever watchful. It's not a crack, 
said Kara. It's a hole, a perfectly round hole. The rest of the group caught up and confirmed the find. It was just as Kara said. There in the ice was a perfectly cut, smooth-edged hole, too perfect to have been made by some falling rock or emerging creature. The depth of the snow surrounding it had hidden it from their view until now. It was brilliant and dark, like a rabbit's eye staring out of a white winter coat. There's another one over here. George had already moved on and discovered another. This hole was of a similar size and only a few steps away from the first one. Tim had his eye fixed on the first hole and wondered how it had been made, or even why. Suddenly, the slim, wriggly body of a fish swam across his view and the idea came to him. They're fishing holes, he shouted. Here's another one, Ben shouted again, a little further onto the ice. Suddenly, the hunt was on. Four more were quickly found, but then five, six, and then seven made themselves known. After half an hour's hunt, they had found 36 fishing holes, and if they had wanted to keep hunting, they were sure they might have found even more. The reason the hunt stopped was because Kara was complaining of being cold, and the group realised that they should probably be heading home soon. Ben, Tim, George, Eddie, Chloe and Sarah were still absent-mindedly keeping an eye out for more fishing holes as they traced their way back to the stony shore. Kara was bored of that game, however, so she turned her eyes back to the shoreline. Doggy! she squealed in delight. Kara loved dogs, maybe even more than she loved cats. The rest of the group looked up ahead to see what she meant. There, waiting for them on the beach, where they had had their lunch, was a rather large, grey dog. And then another dog appeared out of the tree line and came to join it. Two dogs, shouted Kara. Two dogs were even better than one. But then there were three dogs. Four, five, six, seven, eight. Kara! Sara whispered loudly. Come here, please. Come back to us now. Kara turned around to see that her friends were huddled in a group some distance behind her. They looked scared for some reason. Kara turned back and counted two more dogs, a whole pack. And then she realised why her friends were scared. Sara, just come here slowly. Kara turned back to look at the dogs. No, the wolves that were edging ever closer to the ice. She took a step backwards towards her friends just as she watched the largest wolf put a paw on the ice. She began to walk backwards, checking her footing occasionally but not daring to turn her back on the pack. The animals ahead of her were uncertain about traversing the ice, and Kara was nearly with her friends before the first wolf was fully standing on the surface. Watch your step! Kara heard George's voice behind her. She glanced down and twisted her weight just in time to avoid stepping into a fishing hole. She quickly glanced back up to see two more wolves had joined the Alpha on the frozen water. They were clearly unsure about the ice but desperate enough to risk it. One of them even licked its lips in gruesome anticipation. Kara felt a hand grip her arm and she was pulled back into the group's embrace. What do we do now? 
said Eddie, in as steady a voice as he could manage. Chloe took her eyes off the wolves and glanced around. She looked at the footprints they had left in the snow, and she saw how they had left a zigzag pattern around the various fishing holes that they'd found. An idea was forming in her head. Look over there, she said, pointing to the mouth of the river. There was an outcrop of rock accessible through the maze of fishing holes. If we run that way and dodge around the holes, we should be able to reach the rocks before they catch us. But that would mean going towards them, Chloe, protested George. Shouldn't we run backwards, across the lake? No, Chloe cut him off confidently. We don't know where the other fishing holes are behind us. We can go around those ones if we follow our footsteps. We'll have to swing round to the right, but if we go now, then they'll just head us off. We have to wait, said Sarah. Yes, just until they're about there. Chloe pointed to one of the fishing holes they had discovered. It was roughly halfway between them and the pack. Chloe breathed out slowly. She could feel her heartbeat beating out the seconds measuring the footsteps of the largest wolf. She glanced down at Tim and Kara, hoping upon hope that they could keep up with the older kids. Just a few more steps, she whispered. We should run now, said Ben. Not yet, argued Chloe. She could see Ben's hand nervously shaking, playing with the toggles of his oversized coat. Chloe turned back to the wolves. Just a few more steps. Now! she shouted, and they began to run. They had spent a while on the ice now, so they were familiar with how to move. Thankfully, the wolves were new to the feeling. As soon as they broke into a run, the wolves followed suit. A few of them slipped and slid, their claws unsuited for running on this surface. Chloe sprinted ahead, choosing her path carefully. It was not the most direct route. Instead, she wound round the holes, hoping to trick the animals behind them. Occasionally, she would glance back. She saw one wolf lose its footing and fall into a hole just as she planned. Its chin hit the ice with an audible thunk. They were nearly at the outcrop now. Chloe knew that they needed height as well as distance between them and the wolves. The mouth of the river was a stone's throw away. Kara squealed and Chloe turned to see the pack leader snap at her heels, slipping sideways and stumbling as he did. Just a little further she thought. And then she heard the first crack. What was that? shouted Eddie, breathless and terrified. Just keep going. Chloe needed them to ignore it and push forward. A second crack sounded louder than the first. The ice was thin here and was having difficulty holding steady under heavy, concentrated footfall. The third crack visibly split the snow to the left the ice sheet pinged as the impact echoed across the floor. Chloe jumped for the rock and found steady footing. She turned quickly to help the others. The lead wolf had thankfully slipped and was still getting to its feet as Kara finally found the rock and clutched at Chloe's outstretched hand. Are you okay? she asked. Yes, I think so, Kara replied, and the group let out a brief sigh of relief. The wolves were finding their footing and scouting away towards them. Keep going, Sarah shouted and turned to scramble up the rock surface slope. Chloe went to join her, but noticed her brother turned to the right. George, come on, she chided, but then she saw his thinking. 
Using all his remaining strength, George Bergren lifted a small boulder, roughly the size of his own head, up above himself and hurled it at the ice. All children and wolves alike watched it sail through the air. It hit the ice with a wet crunch and went straight through into the water beneath. The wolves watched the cracks appear like a spider's web from the point of impact. Chloe knew they needed to run, but she couldn't help feeling a small sense of satisfaction at watching the lead wolf lose its footing and plunge into the icy water. Twenty minutes later, the children were well on their way back up the mountain. The shock of the chase was still close, and they were all out of breath. Little wet clouds of heavy breath caught the light of the sunset behind them as they walked up and up towards home. That was the scariest thing I've ever done, said Ben. That was scarier than Narvengast, added Eddie. That was scarier than getting home after dark and being shouted at, said Tim. There were no arguments, only further comparisons. That was scarier than having to remember lines in the play, said Sarah. They all laughed in agreement. That was scarier than... Chloe began, but her thought was interrupted by the sight of a figure walking down the river bank towards them. Mrs. Torreson? she said. Oh, I don't know about that, said George. No, look, urged his sister. She's there. The group followed her pointing finger and saw the old woman. They stopped, half out of shock, half out of deference for their elder. The older woman spotted them and smiled. Her eyes closed sweetly as the corners of her mouth curled upwards. The children expected her to say something, but instead she stopped about ten steps ahead of them and took a deep breath. She closed her eyes and began to twist her hands through strange shapes. The young ones watched enraptured as she waved her arms in front of her like she was testing the feeling of fine silk between her fingers. George was about to ask the others what she was doing when they heard a sound behind them. It sounded like the crack of a twig or the rustle of a leaf. They all whipped round and gasped in shock and terror as they caught sight of the largest wolf, still wet from the water, only a few feet away from them. Kara screamed and the wolf ran two or three steps forward before leaping into the air, its jaws open wide, fangs bared and ready for the bite. Chloe thought in that brief moment that all was lost and that they would be dinner for the pack, but then the snow moved. A patch of it between them and the wolf began to shake and shiver. Suddenly, as the wolf was jumping over it, the snow shot upwards, taking the shape of a giant hand. The wolf yelped as the icy fingers closed around its body as quick as a flash of lightning. The snow hand shivered as it tightened and then quickly became hard as ice, freezing the wolf in place. The children turned slowly around to look back at Mrs. Thorison. She's a witch, whispered George, only half under his breath. They watched her reach into a small pack on her side and pull something out that was wrapped in wax cloth. She unwrapped it slowly. The snuffling and grunting sounds of the struggling wolf behind them underscored the process. The wax cloth opened to reveal large slabs of red meat, which Mrs. Thorison proceeded to place gently on the floor by her feet. 
they get hungry in the winter. This stops them from eating our sheep, she said. We should get going, though. The ice will not hold for long. Come, Bairns, I'll walk you back to Ben Luna. The seven friends went with her then. Kara took the old lady's hand as she walked, feeling instantly safe by its tight grip and warmth. The next day was the third since the fish had appeared in Ben Luna. Some of the houses that had decided to keep their fishes were starting to smell. No one had worked out exactly why the fishes had appeared yet, but at least the children knew where they had come from. I can't imagine a demon needing to make fishing holes. Eddie was speaking with his mouthful of lung nut bread, a traditional sugary bake that Ben Luna folk enjoyed around this time of year. They were all sitting in the comfy chairs in the fox and octopus, enjoying a warm milk and honey with their breakfast. So what? asked Chloe. You think people got all those fish from the lake? Edin nodded in response, a splodge of blackcurrant jam staining his chin. Who, though? asked George. Edin shrugged. I don't know. People? He gestured around as if to signify anyone and everyone in Ben Luna. The others thought on this. It did make sense. Although it would point towards evidence of a large and very well-organised operation, somehow the work of a demon still seemed more plausible. And what about the footprint? asked Ben. We still don't know what made that. They all fell silent again. They had set out to find answers, but all they had were more questions. I have an idea. Chloe spoke up. She'd been staring into the crackling fire, barely listening to the others as they spoke. She turned to them now and shared her thoughts. Remember how we said we could set up a watch and try and see if Narvengast comes back to Ben Luna? Well, I think we should do that tonight. The others had not forgotten the conversation. They had been too tired to do anything about it last night, but after their experience with the wolves staying up late to hunt a demon seemed easy enough. We only have two days until Langnut, Chloe reminded them. We can read books and find as many fishing holes as we like, but if we're going to save Ben Luna, then we need to find the culprit. George was impressed by his sister's confidence. He wasn't sure he would have been brave enough to suggest the hunt himself. What are we going to do if we see him? George asked his sister. She turned to him with a strange and mischievous sparkle in her eye. We're going to ask him a few questions. What are you all doing? A voice from the door of the inn drew their attention. Three boys were standing silhouetted against the sunlight. Chloe recognised them, but only knew the name of the boy in the middle, the one who had spoken. Willem Kirk. Get out of here, Willem! Sarah stood up and tried to shoo the three boys away. We're busy and you'll only ruin everything. Willem, who had a bit of a reputation for causing trouble, looked hurt. They closed the door behind them and approached, ignoring Sarah's command. You're investigating the fish, aren't you? The seven friends looked at each other, unsure whether to trust the boy with their secret plans. He was tall and had brown, curly hair, his knees were permanently scraped or wet from fighting and his clothes were a few sizes too big, clearly cast-offs from his older brothers he had yet to grow into. His two friends both had round faces and short red hair, 
They looked similar enough to be brothers. It's okay, Willem continued. We're doing the same thing. Sarah shot Chloe a suspicious look. Was this some kind of mean boy plot meant to poke fun at them? Eddie, still naive to the games of older boys, broke the silence. What have you found? Willem gave him a smirk and looked around to his friends. We'll tell you what we know if you tell us what you know. The offer hung in the air. Could the seven friends risk the bargain? What if these boys didn't know anything and they gave up their secrets for nothing? Surely they couldn't know about the fishing holes and the lake. Chloe considered declining the offer, but then realised something important. Yes, okay. Her team turned to look at her in shock, as if she had betrayed all their hard work. Chloe continued, I think we should work together. We have a plan and we could use some help. Willem smiled a big grin. It looked genuine and void of treachery. Great, he said. We've actually just bumped into some girls who are doing the same thing. The three newcomers came to sit beside them on the soft fireside chairs. Everyone leaned in to swap stories and theories. The four girls they'd spoken to had apparently found the giant footprints and the boys had also spoken to Brother Thomas and read the ancient book. On top of that, they had spoken to Orton, the town trapper, and he'd given them some insights into the story of the prince. He apparently said that the prince was not just guilty of telling lies and being greedy, but of other evils as well. He double-crossed his friends, he was lazy, and he stole money from his family. Chloe told them of the fishing holes they'd found in the frozen lake and their adventure with the wolves. Her friends chipped in with the occasional missed detail. The boys' faces were the picture of suspense, and when the time came to describe Mrs. Thorison's magic, they could barely believe their ears. Finally, George described the plan to meet that night and confront Narvengast. Willem and the two brothers, Michael and Jamie, nodded solemnly and agreed to join in. They would alert the other children of Ben Luna, and together they would confront the vengeful spirit. Chloe and George were the first to arrive in the Benluna town square. They had convinced their parents that they had wished to go to bed early that night and they had even shaped pillows under their covers as an added precaution. Then it was just a matter of slipping out of the window and dropping into the snowdrift below. They hopped from one leg to another and shook their arms to keep warm. The Starva church, usually so grand and welcoming, instead loomed over them like the dark giant they were meant to be hunting. Sarah Smorkop approached them through the gloom, holding a small candle to guide her. Chloe thought she looked like a sprite, or Will-o'-the-Wisp, floating through darkness to guide men to their doom. She waved at them and they exchanged bedroom escape stories until the others joined them. It took about 15 minutes for everyone to arrive. On top of the seven friends who'd visited the lake the day before, there were the three boys they'd met at the inn, as well as four girls from the north part of town. After them, five more children arrived who had apparently also been investigating the Narvengast mystery. Nineteen children in total. After a brief round of introductions, Willem asked the question that was on the tip of everyone's tongue. So, what's the plan? Chloe and George had actually been discussing this earlier that evening, and so when no one offered a plan of their own, 
Chloe spoke up. I think we should split into groups. Each group should station themselves at a road leading out of this square. If anyone sees or hears something strange, they should light a candle. Then the rest of us should run towards the light. Nobody disagreed with the plan and everyone quickly split into eight smaller groups. Make sure every group has a mix of younger and older people, added George. We don't want young ones left alone. A quick reshuffling and the teams were cemented. Thankfully, the sky was only partly cloudy, so all of this could be organised by the lights of one or two candles. Chloe thought she would be more scared than she really felt. Everybody's face glowed with excitement and eagerness. So, if we see something and we all meet... A girl with dark eyes and dark hair called Vanda was speaking up. What do we do then? Chloe had expected the question. We'll figure that out when something happens, I think. Ben Luna has clearly been warned of something. This spirit is telling us to fix it, but we don't know what it is we need to fix. So, if we see it tonight, that's what we're going to find out, OK? Everyone looked at each other and nodded. Their streets were assigned, their candles extinguished. They were ready. Chloe and George were in a team with Eddie and Tim. They made their way across the square to their assigned street, the snow crunching and groaning under their feet. Theirs was the mountain path that led up past the Torreson house and continued up the mountain towards its peak. Everyone all right? Not too cold? George asked. Everyone nodded whilst checking their sleeves, tucking in any loose shirts and generally checking for anywhere their body heat could escape. Now that they wouldn't be moving, the cold would set in quickly. Chloe looked about the square. It was too dark to see all the way over to the other side. The flat snow stretched out into the gloom. She was reminded of the frozen lake. Would this plan turn out to be just as dangerous? Eddie sniffed loudly beside her, and she became aware of just how quiet everything was. She looked at the boys' faces. They seemed to have that strange mixture of excitement and fear that she was feeling. Suddenly, she found that she could see them clearly. A cloud above had moved, and the moon, full, bright and beautiful, illuminated the snowy scene. They all looked up at it for a moment, transfixed by its light. It was the exact opposite of the dark pool in the ice. Chloe smiled and then remembered her duties. Two of us should look out over the square and the others should look towards the path. What do you think we will see? Tim whispered, his teeth chattering. I think it will be scary, replied Eddie. What is it, though? I don't know. Maybe a ghost? Ghosts don't eat fish, Tim giggled. The two boys continued to swap theories about what ghosts or ghouls may or may not eat. Chloe smiled at their silly musings. After Tim and Eddie inevitably began to hit each other, she raised a hand to hush them. We need to keep quiet. We might not hear anything if you two keep... She paused. Chloe had been tasked with watching the square and just now she thought she might have seen something. What is it? asked Tim. Is that a candle? She replied. Everyone whipped round to look across the moonlit square. At the edge of the sea of snow, just where the shadowy walls of buildings began, there was the smallest of lights, barely a pinprick in the distant darkness. 
The four children had to strain their eyes to be sure of what it was. I think it is, said George. Chloe began to walk towards the light, hoping that it would become clearer as she approached. It is. It's a candlelight. Her voice was filled with excitement. Someone had seen something. She started towards the light, the boys quickly following behind her. They hadn't gone ten steps, however, when another light appeared, this time just fifty feet left of the first. Chloe and her group stopped. Which one should we go to? asked George, who'd seen the second light appear also. Chloe glanced from one to the other, unsure of what to do. Then her decision was made for her by the appearance of a third candle flame, further round the square to the left. It's moving, she said and she turned on her heel and headed to the left of the third light, hoping to head off whatever it was that was traversing the Benluna streets so quickly. It didn't take them long to cross the square. The moon illuminated their way, reflecting off the snow as they went. But as they approached the wall of houses, the shadows began to reach out. They hit the entrance to an alleyway where Sarah, Kara and Willem were stationed, Sarah peered out from behind a frightened-looking villain as they approached. What are you lot doing? You nearly made us light the candle. Why aren't you at your post? Chloe had to catch her breath before she could reply, and even then the response came in short bursts. Candles! Already lit! Something coming this way! And that's when they heard it. Or more accurately, they felt it. It was a low, thudding rumble, like when snow avalanches down a hillside, but it only lasted a moment. Suddenly, another came only seconds later. Kara jumped and shrieked as a clump of snow was dislodged and fell from the roof above them. Chloe hushed her quickly and tried to get her breathing under control. Whatever it was that was making the noise, it was big and it was out of sight. At that moment, the rest of the children joined them. Some still had their candles lit. Chloe went over to blow them out. The moon was still bright enough to see by. Then she turned and started walking briskly down the alley. She tried to stay low and hug the walls, hoping they would hide her and her group from whatever it was. The thuds were erratic and evasive. At one moment, they seemed close, only to fade quickly into the distance. Running down the alleyway let the young people of Benluna keep up with whatever it was, but they often found themselves turning around, having half heard a loud thud coming from behind them. Chloe had no room for fear. She pushed all anxiety aside and led her team past the back door of the fox and octopus and further down the alleyway towards the trades quarter. At one point, the moon's light was briefly blocked out, plunging their street into complete darkness for only a second. Too quick to be a cloud, too big to be a bird. Thud. Thud. The rumbles quickened, and Chloe sensed they were getting closer. The alleyway opened out into a cobbled street. The thudding had frustratingly stopped, and the children looked desperately left and right, searching for some sign of the subject of the hunt. The street was quiet and empty. Chloe was about to curse and give up when she saw her brother's face. He was looking up and back towards where they had come from, 
His expression was one of confusion. I can't see the starver, he whispered. Chloe almost dismissed the comment as unimportant, but then she realised that they really hadn't come that far from the town square, and even in this light, the starver church tower should be clearly visible. She turned around to verify her brother's observation. All the children gathered on the snow-covered cobbles turned as one to stare back down the alley and up at the church tower. George was right. The church was invisible, and so was the mountain behind it. That patch of sky was so dark that even the stars were obscured. Chloe turned back to check whether the rest of the sky was just as dark, but the moon was still shining brightly behind her and she could even see stars twinkling around it. She turned back to the patch of darkness. It was still there. Chloe felt her stomach tighten and took a deep, involuntary gulp of cold air as she, along with the other children, saw the darkness move. The creature was darkness made flesh, a being of pure tenebrosity. It blended into the night sky like a shadow in shade. The only thing distinguishing it from the rest of the sky was the occasional absence of stars. They winked out as it swayed clumsily from side to side, shifting its weight to compensate for its massive size. Chloe tried to make out a shape by squinting and employing a little imagination, she thought she could discern a head sitting on giant shoulders on top of a wagon-sized body, arms the size of ceiling beams and legs the length of tree trunks. The children stood frozen in place like that wolf gripped by an icy hand. It was fear and fascination that kept any of them from screaming or running away. Chloe even felt a smile creep across her face. She thought she saw the stars starting to return. Was the giant fading away? There were two lights appearing towards the top of its form where its head would be. Chloe realised that they were not stars. They were the wrong colour and size. These lights were red and they were big. The children stared up at the creature and the creature was staring back. Chloe stepped forward. She knew that if she did nothing now, she would kick herself in the morning. They only had a few hours left until Lungnut, and they could not afford to waste this opportunity. Chloe, what are you doing? Kara found her voice and whispered a loud warning. Chloe put a hand out to calm the group. She turned back and looked up into the eyes. You're the emissary, aren't you? There was silence. The children barely dared to breathe. Chloe went on. You were a prince once. You're here to warn us. I didn't understand before tonight, but I think I know now. The large eyes blinked. Chloe had been mulling the various clues and messages over and over in her head all day, and she had come to a conclusion. We thought that Ben Luna had done something bad, but that's not it. 
The fish weren't given to the town, they were given to the people who live in it. Everyone got one, and so everyone had to think about why that was. It was meant to make us think, wasn't it? It was meant to make us examine the deeds we have done and take steps to make amends. Five days to forgive each other, five days to find the problems and solve them, five nights to hold each other close and share songs by the fire. That's what Lungnut is about, isn't it? We take one last look at the year and we promise to be better. If we truly do our best, then the sun will come back, because it will know that we're trying. So, what I'm trying to say is, thank you, Narvan gasped. Thank you for reminding us every year that we need to be good to each other and good to ourselves. We promise we won't let you down. She turned to smile at her brother, who was smiling back at her. All the children held hands or closed their eyes and made their promises to be better. They knew they would sometimes fail, but the point was not perfection. They understood that now. The point was the effort. This beast, when or if it was alive, had never made the effort to change, and so it was cursed to remind others of its fate each year. So Chloe whispered one final thought to herself with her eyes closed. With that whisper, she forgave the prince, for she knew that he had had no one like Narvengast to warn him. When she opened her eyes, she saw the Starver Church tower, bathed in silver moonlight. The darkness had disappeared. The next day, the children went around the town, telling everyone about what they had learned. Some people believed them, others did not. But everyone agreed that the message was a good one. To love freely and to forgive were not always easy things, but they were what made the long winter nights that much warmer and easier to bear. Chloe and George would spend the night with their parents, swapping stories and singing silly songs that only their family knew the words to. In the morning, after many hours of darkness, the sun would appear and be just a little bit brighter than it had been the day before. Before that, however, Sarah Smorkop had a promise to keep. When the rest of the children were running around town spreading the lessons they'd learned the night before, she snuck through the big double doors of the Starva Church. Inside, she found Brother Thomas and Mrs. Thorison deep in conversation. She shut the doors and they both looked up, alerted by the sound. They smiled and Sarah smiled back at them as she walked down the tapestry-lined passage to the main hall. Good morning, Sarah, said Brother Thomas. Hello, said Sarah in greeting. Some movement from the back of the hall caught her eye and she saw Brother Ulnar carrying some heavy, dark curtains into a storage room. We have been hearing all about your adventures, Mrs. Torreson added. It has been quite an eventful week, Sarah agreed. And a successful one, I might add. The church brother and town elder nodded in agreement. Might I ask, did anyone stand out for next year? said Mrs. Thorison. Sarah had been giving the question some thought that morning and had an answer prepared. I think Chloe Bergren would do well. She's bright, 
and cares greatly for the little ones. Mrs. Torreson smiled. Then we are in agreement. Thank you, Sarah, for helping. You performed admirably. Sarah bowed her head in deference. May I ask? The question caught in Sarah's throat. She was still not used to conversing with important people. But the smile on their faces bade her to continue. Why now? Why this year? She watched Mrs. Thorison turn away as if in deep thought. She was considering her words before answering. It has been a difficult year for everyone. I think it was nice for the young ones to have a distraction from the hardship. They deserve that from us. A little magic, a little adventure is important when you are young. Hello and happy holidays to everyone everywhere. Thank you so much for listening to this winter special, an episode that I originally planned to be only half an hour long, but I really got into it and I really enjoyed writing it and I hope you all enjoyed listening to it. We have our musician Tom Figgins to thank for this one as the idea of a special was his and I'm so glad he suggested it because I wanted to give you all something to enjoy while we continue to wait to hear about funding for Season 3. If we get the funding, then you will all be the first to know. For now, I want to dedicate this episode to everyone who has had a difficult year. Spring is right around the corner, so for now, be sure to hold each other close and savour the long nights. I love you all. See you in the new year for Season 3 of Ben Luna. <laughs>